Good morning, folks. Welcome to Cornerstone Church. My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. It is great to have you with us this morning. Really good to have you with us. And if you're visiting, as someone who's encouraging and supporting someone that's being baptized, a very, 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 very warm welcome to you also. We're going to hear from God's Word. We've started last week a series in the book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah is the book that records for us the last sort of chronological event that occurs in the Old Testament. Then there is a 400-year silence, and then the next thing we hear from heaven is the angels declaring that Jesus Christ is going to be born, which we all know about because at Christmas time, we love that. We love that. And last week, we heard in this book of Nehemiah of a man who lived in a place outside of Jerusalem had been born there, grown up, but he was Jewish. He was from the country of Israel. And a number of years before, Israel, who had been captive in this place where this young man was born and ended up staying for a, sh- for a period of his life, he'd heard news that people had returned back to Jerusalem to build the temple, to build the walls. But the news that he heard, heard was troubling. The news that he understood what should have been occurring wasn't. See, what he heard was the walls of the city of Jerusalem were broken down, completely broken down. And that meant vulnerability for his city. That meant issues of purity for that city at that time. And Nehemiah, who was 800 miles away, heard this news. And we heard last week that it cut him to the heart, that he wept, that he mourned. Something to do with his people was not right, and he saw the implications of it, and it affected him. And this is what we're going to see this week, what he does initially. So if you've got your Bibles, Nehemiah 1, and I'm going to read from verse 4. If you haven't got a Bible, it will be up on the screen. We're going to read the whole of the prayer. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continually fasted and praying before the God of heaven and said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. That I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your your servant Moses saying? If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them. And bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, help us, we ask. Help us, we ask, as we hear from your word, to trust you, to live for you. We pray that our affections for Jesus will be stirred. We pray these things in your precious name. 
Amen. When you hear of trouble, let me be more specific. When you hear or experience trouble that affects you, whether that be family, whether that be friends, whether that be work, whether that be finances, whether that be in the life of the church, when you hear of troubling news, what is your default response? What's your default response? Do you kick into action? Do you panic? Do you put your head in the sand? Are you indifferent to it? Especially if it's something that you can't help with or you think you don't have the capacity for. Are you indifferent? How do you respond? My eldest daughter has had lots of surgeries, and the first surgery that she had to have was a big shock to us as a family. It actually happened at the point where Sean was meant to be given birth to our last child. We found out the day before she gave birth. And what happened was we ended up going to the hospital. So Ella had this massive operation. We ended up in the HDU in this, and usually, usually Sean would stay, would stay with Ella, and that's always happened ever since. That's right, and I'd be at home with the kids, you know, fighting with all the, the things going on with family. But on this occasion, Sean couldn't. She had to take the baby home. So I was there in the hospital at Ella's bed, and I couldn't help her. I couldn't help her. I didn't know what to do. When she was crying, I didn't, I didn't know how to deal with it. I, I just sat at the bed. I couldn't even help Sean. I couldn't help her with a new baby because she was at home. I couldn't even lead the, ch- I couldn't lead the church that I was part of. I couldn't even sleep. I wasn't allowed to sleep in the room because I snore and I woke up all the kids at that brain surgery. I couldn't even, I couldn't do anything. So this is what I did, folks. Because I couldn't do anything else, I prayed. I prayed. Now I share that with you because my default wasn't to pray first. My default was, what can I do to fix this? And I confess that to you. That's my default. When I hear troubling news, I want to kick in and I try and I want to get it sorted. Now, the heart to respond to help is not bad. The heart to fix a problem is not bad. But I know from my own experience that even if I have the skills, the resources, and the ability, the time, or even the capacity to fix it, doing it without God is never best. Doing it without coming to Him is never best. See, here we have Nehemiah who has heard news that is troubling for him to the point that he weeps, to the point that he mourns. This news has hit him right in the gut and it's probably manifesting itself with all sorts of worry and concern and anxiety. Next week we'll hear that this anxiety is all over his face because the king says to him, what's what's the matter with your face? What's going on? But Nehemiah, who was so far away from the problem, And on one level can't do anything about it, but on another actually has a really close relationship with the king who could do something about it, doesn't put his head in the sand. But he also doesn't kick straight into action. Rather, he gets on his knees, he removes all distractions, and he prays. He prays to the one he knows and believes can sort the problem out. See, the pain that he feels, the angst to sort things out are set at the feet of the one he calls Lord over all. See, Nehemiah in his prayer, as he prays, shows that he is dependent on God. There's an old hymn that used to be sung. We used to sing it as kids. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry 
everything to God in prayer. Do you pray? See, here, Nehemiah prays. And there are three things I want us to see in this prayer. What he does straight away, he gives adoration with humble praise. Verse 5, it says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What does he do? He addresses God as Lord God of heaven. Now, folks, in the original language, if you read the original language, because the Bible wasn't written in English, even though us as English people are quite disappointed by that, the original of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Now, the word Lord translates to the word Yahweh, Yahweh, and the word God translates Elohim. So he addresses God as Yahweh, who is the God of the Bible, and Elohim, who is the only supreme mighty God. Now, Nehemiah is living and working in the midst of a country that has a pantheon of different gods, a pantheon of different ideologies, different voices all the time saying, this is what it means to live, this is what it means to be successful, this is what it means to deal with your problems. But Nehemiah addresses in his prayer, Yahweh, the name of God of Israel, and he declares Elohim. He is the only supreme, mighty God. So Nehemiah is not praying to a force or any God or clutching at straws. He's addressing the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, who is the only true and mighty God, who is the Lord of heaven, sovereign, in control over all. He knows where he needs to go. See, this phrase, Lord God of heaven, folks, if you read through the Old Testament, is mentioned 22 times. And most of the times that it's mentioned, it's mentioned by people who are in captivity, either in Assyria, Babylon, or Persia, who have all the temptation to make sense of life and their troubles through the lens of the culture that they find themselves in, which was strong. But God's people in Nehemiah here cuts through all of that, falls at the feet of the one that he is dependent upon and prays to Yahweh Elohim, the only true God, who is the God of Israel, who is the God of the Bible. And as Christians, this is who we are praying to when we pray. This is who we are dependently coming to as we pray, the one true God. And Nehemiah verse 5 says that he is great and he is awesome. When he says that he's great, he's saying he is strong. When he's saying he is awesome, he is to be feared, not in a, a frightened way, but to be feared and held in awe, held in honor in some way. This is who he is, the Lord God of heaven, who is great and awesome, and this is what he does, he says. What does he do? He keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, and keep his commandments. This is who he is, and this is what he does. See, it's interesting. God refers to his people as his treasured possession. If you've got a treasured possession, there may be your children. It may be a phone. Most of us treasure our phone. We know where our phone is all the time. Sometimes we don't know where our kids are. I'm just letting that, putting that with you. We know what it is, and if it's not there. My treasured possession in my house is actually my phone charger because it goes missing all the time. See, we have, a tre- we have treasured possessions that in the midst of all our possessions, they're the things that we keep close. That's what God is saying about his people. In the midst of all that he owns and all that he is over, his people are his treasured possession. See, Nehemiah is praying to the God who has made a promise, who's made covenant with his treasured people that he keeps. 
with a love that is steadfast, a love that never ends, a love that never stops, a love that never moves. That's what steadfast means. He's made a promise that he will love whatever the circumstances, and he will keep to that love. It's like the promise you make if you, if you marry. I've been married for 22 years, and 22 years ago, I stood before Sean, and she stood before me, and we made promises. And one of those promises was we would stay together. We would choose to love each other, whatever the circumstances, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health, for better or worse, till death do us part. The sad thing is I have not loved Sean well in those times. And she's sitting in the room, but I also need to say it, neither has she. But we have a God who's made a promise and a covenant with us who says, I will love you with all that I am, and I will keep my promise whatever the circumstances. See, that's the covenant God has with his people, this promise that he has. And we as his people, in response to his love for us, keep his commandments and we live for him. This is how we reciprocate his love that is steadfast. And folks, it's so important for us to remember what Nehemiah is doing. He is re- he's praising God for his grace. Because God's people don't deserve that love, but they love him. See, grace is this. Grace is God loves us despite of who we are. And in response to him that, and that love, we live for him. We are not living and seeking to love him in order for him to reciprocate that, back love to, that love back to us. No, God loves us. And in response to that love, we live for him. See, Nehemiah is praying in a way that sets God apart from all other gods, all other religions, all other ideologies, all other hopes. But he is also praying this truth about who God is and what God does. A God who keeps his promises with his people, who loves with an unshakable love. He is proclaiming it to God as he comes to him in prayer. But he is also proclaiming it to himself in the midst of his prayer. He's also proclaiming to himself in the midst of a situation where it seems that God is not in control. It seems that the opposite is happening. See, folks, sometimes when we pray, yes, we are praying to God, but in our adoration of who he is, we are also declaring the truths to ourselves about God. This can be very apparent in the most acute and painful situations, can't it? Because our default is that suffering and pain shouldn't happen. Whether you're a Christian or not, you agree with me on that. Whether you're a Christian or not, when you go to a funeral, there's something that's there that says, this doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel normal. Because it's not normal. That's not what God intends. So we pray to the one who is overall saying, what am I experiencing doesn't seem to fit in with you, but I know this to be true of you. And as you proclaim that, as you pray, you remind yourselves of those truths. Sometimes when we pray, yes, we are praying to God in our, our adoration, but so often we are reminding ourselves of the truths of who he is. See, folks, what we see in this prayer is that Nehemiah, in light of who God is, recognizes also where he stands before God, where his primary identity lies. See, he has a privileged job, verse 11. He's the cupbearer to the king. He has the closest relationship with the king, probably more than, he probably had loads of wives, this king. Because 
Nehemiah had to test all the drink and all the food that the king had just in case it was poisoned. So it was a risky job, but I'm sure he was overweight because he probably drank and had so much. See, he realized that his primary identity wasn't cupbearer to the king, it was a servant of God, verse 6. See, when we know who God is, we can understand who we are in light of him. And Nehemiah doesn't revel in his position as a cupbearer, but he revels in being the servant of God. See, he hears the great trouble that comes, so he humbly brings adoration and praise and asks that God who makes promises to listen to him. Then he confesses his sin. Have a look at that, verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. See, besides acknowledging and proclaiming who God is, Nehemiah also acknowledges who he is. And folks, when we pray, that is so important. We've got to recognize who we are as we pray towards him. In Romans 12, Paul, the apostle Paul, is calling Christians to give their lives to serve God in light of what God has done for them. This is what God has done for you. He loves you. So give your life to him. And then he says, in light of that, think of yourself with sober judgment. Sober judgment. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He recognizes who God is, and then in light of the holiness of God, he recognizes who he is. And as a result, recognizes he is not worthy to be heard by God. So what does he do? He starts to confess. See, he knows that the people of Israel and himself, for that matter, do not deserve to have the ear of God. Never mind have God step into the situation. So what does Nehemiah do? He confesses the sins of the people, and he also identifies himself with the people and confesses his own and the sins of his father. See, Nehemiah could have easily, folks, easily gone, well, it's really sad what's happened, but it's not my fault. (laughs) It's not my fault. I wasn't there. I never did it. I'm 800 miles away. Well, to be honest with you, I've heard a few things. They get what they, get what they deserved. I've heard Christians speak like that about other Christians. See, the thing is, God's people started sinning long before Nehemiah was born, but he knew. And he had also, that he had also ignored God's call to faithfulness. And he was honest enough to see and acknowledge that his way of living and approach to God and to life was tainted by sin. And not only his sin, but the sin of his household. He recognized, you are this, and this is how I've been living, and the way that they've been living, and the results of that, I understand. That is who I am. That is what I have done. And I, verse 7, I have brought this corruption, and this sin was against you, God. We've sinned against you. We rejected your word for us. See, folks, it's so important when we talk about sin that the person that we sin against primarily in all sin is God. It's God. See, you can't sin, whether that's on your own or against another person, or the church, and then say, me and God are cool. You can't do that. 
See, all sin is against him. It's a corruption against him, the holy God. Remember, God's commandments for his people were to show them how they were to respond to him, but also to respond to each other in love and in care. And that, that would be seen by the world. So, folks, you can't harbor grief, grievances against others and think you're all right with God. You can't gossip against others and think you are all right with God. You can't abuse your spouse and your kids at any level and think you are okay with God. See, when we sin, whatever that is, we are sinning against God. We are acting corruptly against Him, and we grieve His Spirit. That's what the Bible tells us. We grieve His Spirit. And Nehemiah, in this prayer, recognizes his sin, confesses his sin, and the sins of the people. Now, folks, hear me. The exposing of sin brokenness in our own lives towards God and each other. The exposing of sin and the confession of sin is not a means to make people feel bad. And it's not a means to make people feel guilty. There are ideologies and all sorts of things and religions that use confession for that reason. That is not what the God of the Bible says, no. Confession of sin is not the means to keep people in check. No, confession of sin flows from an understanding that we have a gracious God who loves us and wants us to be restored. Because restoration is found in him and with him. See, Nehemiah knows that the sins of the people have to be dealt with. It's not a matter of him having a new vision for the walls, a new vision for the temple, a new vision for the city, a new person. No, God's people are not going to be rebuilt. They're not going to be restored. They're not going to go anywhere till God deals with their sin. And like the people of Israel, the mess of sin, folks, is our mess. It's our mess. And we have to expose it, own it, grieve it, confess it, and repent of it. But as Christians, we get to confess our mess, not with trepidation, but with hope. See, the Bible says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from anything that stops us from being right with God. That's hopeful, isn't it? Whatever you've done. What I love about this is that Nehemiah doesn't blame the others. He owns the sins of the people, and he owns his own sin. But as an aside point, that is great leadership. That's great leadership. He doesn't throw them under the bus. No, he owns the sin of those that he's going to lead and honestly recognizes his own sins and says, I am a saved sinner who was one of your people and your servant before anything else. But as a leader, I come pleading with you for forgiveness and salvation for them and for me so that we can be rebuilt, restored, and renewed for the glory of God. See, Nehemiah brings adoration and praise. He confesses his sin, and finally, in his prayer, he doesn't come empty-handed. Verses 8 through to 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, Nehemiah says. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. See, Nehemiah is saying, Lord, this is who we are. 
and we and I, we've sinned against you, but I come to you holding in one hand the promises that you've made to the people that you've redeemed, verse 10. I'm going to come with those promises. Please remember them, he says, verse 8. Please remember the promises that you made. Yes, you said that you would scatter your people if they were unfaithful, and you've done that. That's what we're experiencing. That's what we deserve. But in verse 9, Nehemiah reminds God that he also said that if his people turn back to him and keep his commandments, he will gather them back to himself, doesn't matter how far they have gone. See, Nehemiah comes with God's promises, and in faith, praise those promises to remind God, God, you said, and you can read it in Deuteronomy, God, you said, if, if your people turn back to you, you will gather them all in again. Like a loving father, whatever their kids have done, you will gather them back in again. Now, folks, Nehemiah isn't praying this because Israel deserved the attention of God, but because God is a God of covenant promise. God's made this promise. He keeps his promise, and that's what he said he would do. See, Nehemiah is praying the promises of God because he sees that the promises of God eclipses even their sin. It eclipses it. It covers it. God has said that even those who have been, verse 9, outcast to the outermost parts of heaven, he would gather them in if they turned back. Because his promise of love towards people who do not deserve it is steadfast. Folks, this is the mercy and grace of God. This is the mercy and grace of God. We may be a million miles away from him. We may think that our lives are so out of control and so broken and so sinful that this God that this fellow is talking about would never forgive me, would never have me. You may be someone here this morning who is so angry at God or have lived a life saying that there is no God and think there is no way I can turn from that and come back to him. I've denied that he even exists. Or you may be thinking, I've heard too many people and in turn, I've heard God too many times. Let me tell you this, which God says in his promise, which near reminds him of, there is no sin that you can imagine that is stronger than his love. Amen? There is no sin, folks. See, the love of God covers all sin. God the Father gathers all those who turn to him, even if they are on the outskirts of heaven. And how do we know this steadfast love? One, because he is true to his promises to his people but also because he sent his only son, Jesus, to deal with our sin, to deal with our mess. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We have a God that does not condemn. We have a God that saves he sent his own son to die to save us. He loved us and kept his promise so much. Because while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do we see what kind of love this is? 
Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that because of what he's done in Christ, he may call people like you and people like me his children. And in Christ, so we are. And God keeps his promises to his people. See, God keeping his promise is God displaying his will. And Nehemiah praised the promises of God, not to convince God or to twist his arm, but to declare his dependency on a promise keeping God. So that his heart is attuned to God. That his assurance is attuned to the promise. That his hope is attuned to that. That his confidence and his will is in line with the promises of God in the midst of uncertainty. In the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, he comes with the promises that the God who keeps his promises has made, and he falls on them. See, in his prayer, he doesn't come empty-handed. He comes with the promises that God has made. So this morning, God has said he will reveal himself if people ask. If you're a person here this morning going, well, where is this God? Ask the promise-keeping God to reveal himself to you. Ask him. Nehemiah comes in one hand with promise, and then he comes in the other with a prayer for action. See, Nehemiah, who is praying and has been praying for days and will continue for months, uses this prayer as a springboard to concrete action. Concrete action. What does he say? Verse 10, grant me favor. In other words, Grant me favor in front of my boss because I may be able to do something to help God's people here. I may be able to do something. See, Nehemiah saw that his position, he had a position that could help, that could do something. He had access to the king of Persia who is the one that makes the decisions whether they can, God's people can have help. So Nehemiah prays, and that is the right response and the correct call. But he also sees that he could be the answer to the prayer in some way. Are you with me? He could also be the answer to the prayer. There's a beautiful story in the Bible, a love story. It's called Ruth. It's four chapters. If you get a chance, read it. And the hero of the story is called Boaz. What a great name. And Boaz sees Ruth, and she's in a bit of a predicament. And he prays that God would bless her and, and care for her and abundantly provide for her in all different ways. And Boaz, who is a businessman, as he prays, comes to realize that he could be the answer to the prayer. Folks, we could be the answer to the prayers that we are praying for our friends and our neighbors. We come with the promises of God and prayer. There's a missionary in the 20th century to China called James Fraser at the beginning of the 20th century said this, I do not intend to be one of those who bemoan little results while resting in the faithfulness of God. My cue is to take hold of the faithfulness of God and use the means necessary to secure big results. In other words, I'm going to pray with confidence in God's faithfulness, and I'm going to do whatever I can with whatever I can to see as many people as possible in China come to the Lord Jesus. Folks, if you're praying for your neighbors, for your family to become Christians, it's a high possibility that you are the means by which they are to hear about him. You are therefore the answer to the prayer. Folks, where do we go in times of trouble? Where do we go in times of sadness and confusion? See, Nehemiah here, he goes to God who has promised to redeem, to walk, to comfort his people. And that's also true for us. See, the Lord Jesus made a promise. He said this, 
that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He promised to comfort, to guide, to help. He promises to return and to make all things new. My question is, do you know this God? I can't tell you the amount of times of people that I know in life who say they don't believe in God, but when it hits the fan, what do they ask me to do? They ask me to pray to my God. Do you know this God? Do you have this assurance? See, the people being baptized are going to publicly say that they do. They're going to say that they recognize who he is. And in light of that, they recognize who, who they are. And then they're going to see the wonderful love of God and that he sent his only son to die for them. And that their sins can be forgiven. That they can have a hope for a future. They can have peace in the midst of the presence. And yes, life may be difficult and there may be circumstances that are pouring all around them, but they know that they can come to a father who loves them, who keeps a promise for them and has assured a future where there is no pain and there is no suffering when Jesus returns to make all things new. Do you have this hope and do you have this assurance? When these guys go down into the water and they come up, they're not becoming Christians at this point. When they go down into the water, they are publicly identifying with the fact that Jesus Christ, the perfect one, fully God, fully man that had never sinned, became sin for them. And as a result, they died. He died in their place. He was punished in their place. But that death was enough to pay for their sins. Why do we know that? Because he rose again three days later, triumphant, never to die again. And that is the hope that we have as Christians, that yes, we may physically die. Yes, we may close our eyes on this life, but we will open them out seeing the wonder and the beauty of the covenant promise-keeping God who has given everything so that we can be his kids, so that we can flourish in this life and that we can have a hope for life eternal. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to the covenant of promise keeping God in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you from the bottom of our hearts that you are gracious, that you are kind. We praise and thank you so much that you are a God who keeps his promises, that doesn't wag a finger of condemnation, but rather has arms open wide of grace and love. And Father, we praise and we thank you now that after we've sung, we're going to see people stand here professing the truth of who you are and what you've done for them in Christ. And then they're going to walk in obedience and be baptized. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you would move in their hearts and move in our hearts, both those who know you, but also I ask by your Spirit, those who don't. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work amongst us for your glory's sake. Bless us. And Father, for those of us in the midst of trouble, I pray that our default will be to come to you. The Lord Jesus, when he was in despair, when he found difficulty, where did he go? He came to you. So, Father, why do we think that we can do it on our own? Help us to be people who pray. Help us to be people who come. Help us to be people who know your promises, but also hold on to your promises. And help us to be people who also can be the answer to the prayers. Help us do that for your glory and for the sake of the world. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. And after we sing, we're going to hear from all the people being baptized. And Paul's going to be baptizing them.